You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, a typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Well, as we're approaching his release, it is, it is a total nightmare, yes. Well, it absolutely is, because it must be terrifying. You, you must be frightened. We are frightened. We're, we're frightened, not just for our family, but for the public in general. I mean, you know, he committed a horrendous crime, hitting my daughter over the head with a claw hammer 14 times, causing 37 injuries to her head, whilst her children could hear it happening. Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell. I'm joined again this week by the incredible Diana Parks and Hetty Nanton to talk about Joanna Simpson. Now, in part two of our conversation, we talk about Robert Brown's behaviour leading up to him killing Joe. Now, we do go into granular detail about how he killed Joe because it's highly relevant to what happened at the trial. Staggeringly, Brown was found not guilty of murder. He claimed that he had an adjustment disorder, that he was under great stress due to the divorce, and he was found guilty of manslaughter, diminished responsibility. However, there was an abundance of evidence that pointed to premeditation, preparation and evidence of great attention to detail in the execution of killing Joe, and also what he did afterwards, his post-offence behaviour. That's what we're going to think about. But the fact that he was found not guilty of murder has had serious repercussions, and Brown is due out next year, November 2023. Due to our graphic conversation, listener discretion is advised. Okay, with that having been said, let's rejoin the conversation. Let's talk about the 31st of October 2010, because this is when the catastrophic event happens, when Brown has had the children and he drops them off at Joe's house. Now, you mentioned, Di, he's not meant to be at the property, that normally you would ask and make sure with Joe that someone was there because you were worried about her. But on this occasion, someone wasn't there. Is that right? Sadly, they weren't. She'd had guests staying the week before and Brown had come in shouting 
and they were quite upset by this guy coming into their house and shouting at Joe when they were get B&B guests. So, I mean, he was obviously in quite an enraged state. And Joe was expecting the children to come back at four. She'd been with me the week before, the first week of half term. Then the children went to Rob for the second half of uh, half term. And he, she asked for him to bring them back at four o'clock because he said he wanted to bring them back at five. And in my mind, it that was when it would be dark on October the 31st. Yeah. But she said, well, Katie's got homework to do and everything. So anyway, the children all came in and went into the kitchen and the, then the family room. And Brown walked in, which he shouldn't have done, with the claw hammer in one of the children's homework bags. And Katie has told me how she could hear the bang, bang, bang as he killed her mother. That's absolutely horrific. And then he told her to go upstairs. Um, Alex um, was down, was still in the next room. And there was a, an imprint of his foot in blood on the floor. Um, and he has kept very quiet about it always. Um, and in my mind, he then pulled a seat. He carried Joe to the car, back of his car. And Katie was upstairs, obviously, looking from the landing window. And Alex was downstairs looking out. And they both saw him putting her into the back of the car. And he then came in, pulled out the CTDB and telephone cable, and obviously realized they'd both seen him. And so instead of going off and leaving them without any form of communication, bear in mind they were only nine and ten, and the police thought that that was, going, that was what he'd planned to do, leave them alone and go and bury her. And then the next day he was planning to fly a jumbo jet to Lagos. Yeah, yeah. And he said he'd rather down the plane than go to prison and commit suicide. He'd rather down the plane and commit suicide with all these passengers on board. And he said that in court. Why nobody picked it up, I don't know. Incredibly dangerous. I just see red flag, red flag, red flag. And of course, the build up to this event has been slow and insidious and over time. And that's why I call cases like Joe's murder in slow motion. It didn't just happen in his head that that's what he would do. He went there with a hammer. He put it in the children's bag and he went there with murder in mind. I have no doubt about that from reading everything about the case, from listening to everything that you've said. And he puts her body in the car. The children hear it. They see their mother and he puts them in the car, drives them, because what my listeners won't know is he has a partner and he drives them to his partner where he's living and then he goes off. Then we know that he buries Joe in Windsor Park and then he reappears early in the morning and as you said, Di, he's meant to be flying a plane to Lagos but his partner tells him not to go and he doesn't but at no point it's important for people to hear did he call for help at no point after hurting Joe and killing Joe did he call for help he actually then went and and buried Joe's body in the middle of the woods Alex did ask when they were in the car with their mother are you taking her to hospital and he didn't reply Bear in mind that his girlfriend was five months pregnant as well. So again, people might be 
shocked and surprised to hear that. But unfortunately, that's not that uncommon. The, the abuser, the perpetrator has a new partner and yet he is still behaving in a way that is abusive and may even kill his old partner, Joe. So what happens next? And, and I think it is important to people to understand that he did have a plastic sheeting with him as well to put her body in. And he had been digging that grave for potentially weeks, if not months, right? It took time. And when, when we think about woodland in winter, the ground is harder, more compact, so it does take time. But he had a plastic crate that he put Joe's body in. He had thought this through. This wasn't a spur of the moment. This was something that was very well thought through, that the police actually said that they would not have found Joe's body had he not have, after five days of being questioned, had he not have taken them there eventually. And that's another very important point when we think about cases and what happens at trial and prosecuting cases. Laura, it's worth just making this a little bit real for listeners. So you can sort of get your head around someone digging a shallow grave, kind of. If you can, then you can get your head around that. This was a six foot deep grave dug to the precise dimension of a large garden box. The garden box had been lined with plastic to stop fluids from seeping out. Um, this was, and very chillingly, in the precise place where the grave, where the grave, where all of this happened, was directly under the flight path for aeroplanes coming into Heathrow. And therefore, he also would have worked out that he therefore would have been able to keep an eye on it moving forward to check that there'd been no disturbance. It was about as cold and chilling and calculated as it comes. Planning, premeditation, calculated, absolutely. Clinical, precision. Yeah. Absolutely. And when yeah. I took the children, I said to the children, would you like to see where mum was found? And they said they would. And as we approached where the grave had been, they both said, oh, we know this area really well. We've got a den nearby. Oh, my goodness. And, and that half term that they'd been with him, funnily enough, he'd taken them to play in the den several times and had disappeared and left them playing in the den. So he was digging the grave whilst... I mentioned that to Katie today and she said, I don't think you can actually say that. Oh, uh, so okay. Okay. Yeah, that's Sorry. what she said. But at the very least, he took them there maybe for surveillance, reconnaissance. He wanted to check out that spot. There was a reason for going there rather than just taking the kids to play there. I mean, we don't know for sure. It was strange that the den was so near the grave. And it would have taken time. I mean, that's the thing. To create something like that, it takes time. It's not just the, the thought, it's the planning, it's... Uh, he invested time into it. And that's important when we think about what happened at the trial. Totally. And and it wasn't just a plastic sheet. He'd also bought a big surfboard cover. He, bought, got, he had ties, rope. He had blue plastic shoe coverings. He had white plastic overalls. It was So the white overalls that forensic teams use, that sort of thing. Yes, yes. I did read that and I wanted to fact check that. So again, careful planning and premeditation had been carefully thought through. Yeah, it was yeah. extraordinary how the jury just could not 
get it round their head. Well, let's talk about the trial, Diana. I mean, the, the trial was eight days long, which is extraordinarily short, actually, for, for a trial of something this of this gravity and serious nature. Can you describe what happened at, at the trial? Because I, I formed the impression that Joe was put on trial and Joe was put under the microscope. Can you both share what happened? He'd been in jail planning this ridiculous adjustment disorder statement and we were not allowed to speak to each other. I only met the prosecuting barrister five minutes before I went into court you are given such fear to go into that witness box. You don't look anywhere else except at the jury. Don't do this. Don't do that. It was terrifying. I've never been involved with the law before, ever. And I found it absolutely terrible. And you only answer yes or no. It was simply awful. Um, I, I just hope I didn't make things worse for the tri- at the trial because I was so nervous and it, it was awful. I, I I can't tell you how awful it was. And Graham Reed was so horrendous. So this was the prosecutor? Yeah. So, Di, I Ooh. can absolutely reassure, because I go. No, I think you should respond, Hetty. I mean, you want to reassure Di Well, I want to absolutely reassure you that any, nothing that you did or said in that witness box would have had any bearing whatsoever in terms of encouraging a not guilty verdict that we got. There is just no question of that in my mind. At no point when you were talking, it was just plainly obvious how much you adored Jo, how wonderful she was, and quite how devastated you were. So I, I, I absolutely, you were clear as absolutely crystal clear. I wouldn't even have that second thought on that. My view as to at a fundamental level what went wrong, and I know Di, you will fill in put some colour on this, but at a fundamental level, the prosecution so obviously he was charged with murder. He was in court claiming diminished responsibility due to adjust adjustment disorder with so much evidence of pre planning. The prosecution were simply complacent and believed it was an absolute slam dunk, hence why it was so short. They focused very much on the premeditation, but they underestimated Robert Brown, who basically stood in court. And if he could have been in his British Airways pilot uniform, he would have been because he wanted to charm them. And he spent his entire witness statement and all of the evidence around it was basically painting Joe as the bitch from hell. And that was the pattern that I think ultimately resulted in the jury deciding the verdict that they decided. But I will put a lot more colour on that, but as a kind of macro level, that's my view of what what happened. I can tell you, Laura, that the night before the verdict, I lived in Jo's house. I slept in her bed. I didn't change the sheets. She'd had an awful cold, and I found it somehow comforting to be in her bed. And I wrote... There has been a gross miscarriage of justice. I looked across at the jury's faces. I knew they believed Brown. They didn't believe anybody else. And that was a fait accompli to me. Our barrister was a disgrace. He really was a disgrace. He didn't do his work at all. He didn't bring the divorce into the case in any way at all. He said it had nothing. He wasn't deciding a divorce case. He was deciding a murder case. And when we tried to tell him that really he must look, he went trivia, trivia. And he said, 
I'm going to go and have a large gin and tonic and forget all about your trial. And I complained to the lawyer, Dennis Burke, and I said to him, I'm really, really feeling pretty dreadful about Graham Reed's. And he came to me the next morning in the public gallery and said, I hear you're feeling very stressed. I mean, what kind of a man was that? I'm so sorry, Diana. That's absolutely abhorrent. There is no way that a prosecuting barrister should be talking to a mother who's been bereaved and is being traumatised through the court process like that, for one. And for two, separation is a high risk for victims of coercive control and stalking. And it is absolutely relevant what she was going through, what Brown put her through. And that is not acceptable for him to say it's trivia when it actually is about the continuum of what the events that built up with Brown taking intentional steps to think about how he was going to kill Joe and then execute in front of the children with no regard for them whatsoever and at no point calling for help. And even when he did call the police, he wanted an appointment, a casual appointment. All of these things talk to his mindset and his psychology and his character, which should have been challenged that he wasn't this British Airways pilot that was an incredible person in his job and in his home life. He caused absolute terror and fear for Joe. And that's what should have been presented as evidence. And Joe's character should have been presented as evidence too. It should have been challenged how she was being painted. And it does make me incredibly angry how victims, when they're no longer here to give a different narrative, to challenge it, how those people like Mr. Reeds, who's meant to be her voice piece, who's meant to be painting the picture for the jury, fells the victim and their family so badly. That's not okay. And I'm really sorry that that happened because it had disastrous consequences that you're now still dealing with. That we have yeah. him coming out next year. He is a psychopath. We fear for our lives. Brown's state of mind is really important in all of this. I want you to listen to the call that he made to the police the next day after he had killed Joe and buried her body. You're now going to hear Brown's voice. Hello, Thames Valley Police, Nicole speaking. Yeah, hello. Um, I'd like to, to make an appointment to, to come in um, regarding a, a, an incident that occurred yesterday. Okay. Um, Can I ask what the incident was? Um, it, it's of a domestic issue. Right, okay. So you wanted to make an appointment to, to speak to someone about it? Yes. Okay, let me take some details from you. The reason I'm asking um, for that before I can make the appointment is because it is a domestic and our policy. Well, I mean, it's a serious domestic, if you want. Yeah. Okay, usually with our domestic policies, what we do is we um, advise that we lost things to 10 within the hour, but if you want to make an appointment instead of that, I can still do that with you. Let's do again. Our policy for domestic incidents yeah. is usually for an officer to attend within the hour to discuss this. Yeah. Okay, but if, you, if, you're, if you're not able to do that, I can still make an appointment with you. I mean, I, I'd, I'd rather come up to the police station as uh, yeah. I've got four children here and I, I, I wouldn't want to, that's fine, that's to, to worry them any further. Um, okay. But, I mean, I, I will, I won't, you know. Yeah, okay. Let me take some details from you, okay? Then I will, I will go and try to be able to book an appointment with you. Um, can you just explain to me what, what the situation is? Uh, 
Well, I, I, I've spoken to my lawyer, and yeah. uh, and he said not to to, to say anything. So tell us um, why he said that. Um, the the incidents of a serious nature. Right. When you say serious, because I need to highlight this to the officer of how serious it is, and this only lies with me passing it to the officer. Can I ask what what it is? How serious? Uh, I, I'm, I really don't want to say anything, actually. Um, uh, Can I ask why? I mean, this is confidential. This is between me and you. Well, because it's uh, well, it's I mean, it's extremely serious nature, and um, uh, <coughs> I, I, I'm assuming it's regarding with your ex-partner. Yes. Okay, and. And the incidents occurred recently. Yes, yes, last night. Right, and you're you're both okay, are you? You're not. None of you are harmed at all, are you? Well, well, we have one one person is. Right. Okay. Is that person seeking any medical attention? Do you know? Do they need it? Uh, no. No. But, uh, 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 and you've got children involved as well. Yes. Okay, but they're with you at the moment and they're safe. They're they're with me and they're safe. Okay. My my girlfriend's looking after them. If so they live with your girl. Is it your girlfriend that's in the situation no, no, my, or no? My ex-wife. Okay, that's fine. So they're all okay, but you want to come and discuss this, yeah. right? When you say serious, okay, and I'm only going by assumption. I'm assuming it's something that you have seeked because you're worried about the consequences. Yes, indeed. Okay. Right, let me take some details from you. Can I start with your name? My name is Robert Brown. And an address for you, please, Robert. It's Springfield, North Street. The postcode is SL44TE. Thank you. And what number are you? Is it called Springfield? The house is called Springfield. Lovely. Okay, let me find that. North Street. Okay. And this incident happened yesterday, did you say? Yes, it did when I was dropping off the children. Okay. And can I take her name? Again, it's just for our information. Uh, her name, my ex-wife, is, is Joanna Brown. And her date of birth, please. Uh, 6 5 64, Yeah. Okay. I'm going to go quiet for a second. Okay. Sorry, I'm just getting our diary sheet up at the same time. And you wanted to come to the station? Yes, indeed. Okay, I'm just going to see if there's anything for today. If I'm able to get one today, is that a good time for you? Say again. If, if I'm able to get an appointment for you today, would that be okay for you? Absolutely. Yeah, okay. Let's have a look. I was going to put in hold for one moment while I check. I think I've got an appointment here, but I just want to clarify it, if that's okay. Yes, okay, one moment. Hello, sir. Hello. Thank you for holding. I had a bit of a problem with our diary system. What I'm going to do is um, give you this reference number, okay? I'm going to ask if you can attend the police station, yeah. um, Blacknell, um, as soon as you can. What we'll do... Okay. Yeah, we'll get an officer to... Actually, sorry, you're from Windsor, aren't you? Yeah. Attend the Windsor one. Um, I will pass this class to an officer and we'll get some... You're, you're going to get an officer to go to, me. to the Bracknell. Um, where is the Bracknell off the station? We'll get to the Windsor one, sorry. Oh, sorry Let me correct it. Yeah, Windsor's your local one, isn't it? Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, we'll get an officer to attend there to meet you um, to discuss it.
Great. Okay, because um, unfortunately I can't get any appointments for today, but due to what you're telling me, I think we need to speak to you today. Yeah, I'll, I'll come in, don't worry. Okay. I'll be there. Let me give you the reference, then, in case yes. you need it. Yes, it's 235. 235. Yeah, and that's today's date. So it's the 1st of the 11th, 10. 111. It is indeed. Yeah, we'll see you shortly. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Okay, what did you think about that? For me, it really depicts how calm, collected, precise, thoughtful, and very much in control he was at the time. We can hear it for ourselves. The fact he wanted to make an appointment regarding an incident, in inverted commas, that happened yesterday, where the reality was that he killed Joe, that's as serious as it gets. That's not a come in, make an appointment and chat matter. And at no point did he care about the children before. I mean, he killed their mother and the children were in the house. They heard him kill her. And he says to the call handler that the children are safe, but it's him that they're at risk from. It's really interesting to me how he avoids saying what he's done, but he's very cooperative with all the other details. This, for me, is someone who knows what he's doing. He's not remorseful. We don't hear that he's sorry for what he's done. There's no sign that he's upset. And what's also interesting is that the core handler knows it relates to his ex-partner. So there's undoubtedly a history. And that history is important in court, along with how he behaved and his lack of remorse. OK, so ponder on all of that. Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly, allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So yeah, so for listeners to know, what basically happened was that he got a not guilty on the murder and the diminished responsibility was accepted. And this adjustment disorder, which by the way, tends to be, it's teenagers that tend to have it, not men who are British Airways pilots who have other people's lives in their hands. So actually that should have been challenged vigorously at court because it would have been picked up upon, I'm sure, if he was displaying this behaviour for months. And we are talking about months. We're not talking about a night or a day. We're talking about months of the build-up to this event. But he got the not guilty. I, I read that some people said that he was smirking when that was read out, which talks to his character too, because he has two children who are growing up without a mother, and there he is smirking. And that is 
again, it just shows a callous disregard, a lack of responsibility taking for, for what he has done. So you mentioned the word psychopath die, and I would hope that he's been assessed for psychopathy. But what basically resulted was that he got 26 years. And those 26 years, it sounds like a long sentence, doesn't it? And you might think, well, that sounds good, but actually that means he would serve half and come out at the halfway point, which is next year, right? So so tell me about that and, and what you're fearful of and, and what we can do to try and help. I don't know. We we don't know what we're trying to do, everything we can, aren't we, Hetty, to somehow try and make somebody see sense. Does if common yeah. sense just hasn't been in our favour whatsoever. Yeah, well, I you... think it's worth, clar- it's worth clarifying for, for listeners, actually, that a lot of experts in the field don't understand this either. We've had to correct them so many times, and it took us about two years to get clarity on this at all, is that with a determinate sentence in a manslaughter conviction, you are entitled to be let out halfway through, or I think now it's changed, so if it's a serious crime, it's two-thirds of the way through. But when you are released, you're entitled to be released. And the only thing that can stop that from happening is if you effectively do a criminal act within prison. Other than that, the law has no power to retain you in prison beyond that point of when you're entitled to be released. So it doesn't matter if he has not been abiding to all the prison rules. It doesn't matter if the police believe that he is a risk. He has to be released. That is the law. And a lot of people don't realise that. So they always say, oh, don't worry, he'll, he'll, he'll have to go to parole and I'm sure they won't let him out. And he does not have to go to parole. And it's really important that people understand that. And in fact, one of the campaigns that we are just about to start and your support in in amplifying that would be amazing, and we don't know if it'll help us because it probably won't be retrospective, is to basically ask for a change so that if someone is convicted of diminished manslaughter due to diminished responsibility, which in other words is saying that their act of killing was substantially influenced by their but by a a medical condition, typically a recognised mental medical condition. So if they've managed to use, in our case, adjustment disorder to get off murder, then effectively, as long as they've still got adjustment disorder or something like it, they're extremely dangerous because last time they had adjustment disorder, they killed. And it was the reason, a substantial reason why they killed. So our campaign is saying that if you have been found guilty manslaughter with diminished responsibility and you're given a determinate sentence, even so, your release must be dependent on a psychological assessment and it must be reviewed by a body, probably the parole board, and you cannot be released if actually the facts reflect the fact that you are still suffering from from the same type of medical condition that influenced you to kill in the first place because by definition that says you're still dangerous. Yes, and that makes sense. And I would love psychopathy to be included in that because oftentimes men like Brown aren't assessed for psychopathy. And there are 20 key traits. And as you've been describing him, it sounds to me, and I haven't assessed him, I do do indirect assessments based on all the information that others who know the person best know that individual by. And sometimes that's the more accurate read because psychopaths lie, they're pathological liars. But it sounds to me like he should be assessed for that. So the knock-on effect has been very severe for all of you and for the fact that he will come out next year. And of course, you're terrified about that. 
The other thing I just want to say is that there was information, Di, that you sent me that he is actually a serial perpetrator. And that there was another woman who suffered severe psychological abuse, which I would wonder whether that was actually coercive control. And therefore, if that has not been understood at the point he's gone into the prison system, how can anyone accurately assess him anyway? If it's not understood exactly what he's done and who it's done, who he's done it to, how many people, then there's not going to be an accurate assessment because I would doubt that he would be volunteering that information. So to that point, Hetty, you know, you're releasing somebody who said that he had this disorder. And by the way, he had six months to come up with his defense strategy, didn't he? That's what happens. You've got a bright, smart, intelligent man. He comes up with a defense strategy that how do we know he's still not a risk? to you, to other women that he may have a relationship with going forward. And and he's trying to be moved to Scotland, which again, they have different systems and different processes, don't they? So people can fall through the cracks very easily. And it is really alarming that A, you've not just the murder that you've had to deal with, Joe being killed so brutally and violently in front of the two children. And Diana, I pay tribute to you for bringing up the children and changing your whole life And I know you say that you both, well, you and the children had each other and they kept you going. But I know it's been a huge change for you and you love the children who are now adults dearly. But it it hasn't ended. You went through a very traumatic court process, a miscarriage of justice, as you called it. You met with the CPS heads. You met with Alison Saunders and she said, oh, well, we've tweaked our guidelines for prosecutors and that they must challenge the defendant. Well, that's bloody ipso facto, isn't it? Of course, a prosecutor should be challenging. Of course, the prosecutor is a bar. He was a barrister, a QC. Of course, he should be putting the coercive control and stalking before the court. These are all basic things that that's not acceptable to say, oh, well, we've tweaked our guidance and therefore we've done our bit. I mean, much more needs to happen here, as, as you say, Hetty, and I'll you know, support the campaign and put out what I can um, to support you. And what else can people do, Diana and Hetty, to raise awareness and keep momentum and pressure on to ensure that this doesn't happen again and that he is managed appropriately? Is there anything that... Who's going to do? manage him for 13 years? Who is going to manage him? Glenis Stacy, who used to be the head of probation, she said... When she was there, the probation service is irredeemably broken. So who? 13 years is an awful long time to be watching somebody. Who's going to do it? Well, that's the question, isn't it? And it it can't be, it's never 24-7. Sorry, go ahead, Hetty. In terms of the trial, one of the things I reflect on that I think is worthy of experts and professionals in the field thinking about is that actually what played out in the trial was more coercion, more control. He was given free reign to undermine her, to destroy her character. It's the same pattern playing its way through in the trial. And if people don't prosecute properly and they don't think about the whole kind of every element. The totality of the circumstances. Correct. Then then actually these perpetrators will find their way through and they will take advantage of that and they will absolutely take advantage to destroy the character of and, and absolutely bring that coercion into the trial. So I think that is a really important thing. Yes, yeah, so it mirrored how he treated her in real life and, and the court and Mr. Reeds allowed that to continue. And I think that is egregious, as as you say, Hetty. 
Yeah, and and that smirk that he gave when the when the not guilty verdict came through, come back to the point you made a while ago, Laura, about him wanting to win at all costs. And in his mind, that smirk was all about, you see, I've won. It's all about winning. And then he even went to appeal. <laughs> he appealed the sentence. And thank thank you, Lord Judge, who was presiding over the appeal, actually was very, very good in coming back very quickly, actually, um, and saying that they would uphold the original sentence, which was an unprecedented sentence for manslaughter. This was a killing for money. Yeah, so that simplifies what it was about. It's about power and control, and therefore the power and control dynamics still continued at court. And I think the judge, Judge Mr Justice Cook, understood what had happened because he said, yeah, and his comment at sentencing I think was important. He said, you intended to kill, you intended to conceal the body and to hide the evidence of the killing. You never called an ambulance or took her to hospital. In my judgment, you never had any intention to. What he's basically saying is that you premeditated, you prepared, it was preparatory behaviour and you murdered her, not killed her. But that's the distinction, isn't it, that when it's diminished responsibility. So the judge understood it, but unfortunately you were failed terribly at the point of the trial, whether it's because Mr. Reeds thought it was a, a slam dunk case. I did read a quote that he said, which was when asked to challenge Joe being character assassinated and, and Brown being put on this pedestal. He said, I'm here to get a murder conviction and not to win a popularity contest which again just shows me that he completely misunderstood what the case was about. We met Keir Starmer and I said to Keir, I said, whatever, this was when he was Director of Public Prosecutions, I said, whatever you do, do not let Reed near any, any murder of this kind ever again, because he just doesn't get it. Those are the words I said, he just does not get it. And I think it's true. Absolutely horrific and with dire consequence. Very sadly, Laura, it was just at the beginning of all the cuts. And so there were 20 witnesses wanting to go in to the witness box on behalf of Joe. And it was they were all cancelled because yeah. the CPS thought this is definitely going to be murder. No doubt. Slam dunk case, arrogance and lack of preparation and... Anything can happen at trial. You know, I've seen everything and anything happen at trial. No case is a slam dunk case, never. And the arrogance is very problematic, I have to say. I'm, I'm really perturbed to hear that. It is. And I think it is. I'm, I'm afraid to say, I think it also goes back to that old culture of it's just the domestic. If I compare what happened at trial with Robert Brown with what happened at trial for poor Joe Yates, but not a domestic, more of a stranger murder, and they quite rightly, I think, did that trial right. You know, they took the jury out to where Joe had been found. They took the jury to the house where she lived in. You know, they left, I think, no stone unturned in that trial, um, which absolutely is the right thing to do. And I'm so, so pleased, you know, for for Joe's family that that was done and that they got the conviction that they needed I don't think they didn't do that with Joe. You know, Joe jo was buried deep in Windsor Great Park. 
you know, they should have seen that. They should have seen how deep into the Windsor Great Park that, 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 that it was. They should have seen the circumstances at the house and how he came in at the gate and blah, blah, blah. They needed to see all of that, but they weren't because I think they thought it's just a domestic. It's obvious it's a slam dunk. We can cut corners, get it done quickly. Boom. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And we're left with the consequences. Yes. And as you're talking, I'm thinking about Sally Challen's case where Sally Challen, there wasn't a premeditated aspect to her case, but she ended up with a 28 year sentence and her defence team told her, don't speak ill of the dead. And they wouldn't even allow her to talk about the abuse that she suffered. So isn't it interesting that Joe, your daughter was put on trial and Brown's status was elevated at the trial. And I have to say, I remember the case at the time. And what I'll share with you about it is that I remembered more about him than her, the BA pilot. That's what the media kept picking up on, of who he was, his standing, as if that talks to character and ergo, he probably didn't do it and not in the way that it's been described. And that, again, is another form of victimization for you and the family of what the media have put out is what people remember of the case. And as you said, Hetty, he may as well have been wearing his BA pilot uniform because he was built up through the trial, whereas Joe was brought down and reduced. And it should never be that way. Sally's challenge case was the opposite. She suffered from 15 to 56 years of age, and that was never put before the court. But yet the prosecutors managed to prosecute that with vigour and be very rigorous, and she ended up with a 28-year sentence. So it just shows that it can be done. You know, if you do want to fully understand a case and prosecute it, it can be done. It's about what you're willing to see and understand and to say things are trivia. He should be struck off, quite frankly, because... He's gone on to continue drinking his gin and tonics. And here you are still dealing with the legacy of his poor and bad decision making or whoever else were the senior leaders around him who made those decisions with profound consequence. And one of the things I want my listeners to think about is the register, because men like Brown, you know, we know that he abused another woman before Joe. I can't speak for Stephanie, his girlfriend who he got pregnant and then ended up marrying. But no. No, no, not married. Okay, so I can't speak for Stephanie. I, I heard that he did marry her, but perhaps that's not true. He was going to marry her. It was in the paper when I was staying with a friend of mine. She said, God, die, look at this. Stephanie's going to marry Rob in prison. Anyway, I got straight onto my victim liaison officer who found out and said, no, it hasn't happened. So it was reported that he married Stephanie, but it sounds like he didn't. But the the relationship, what was the state of it? We don't know. But what I do know about men like Brown who abuse one person is that unless there's a real fear of consequence to make them change, they just continue that pattern. So the risk for the future relationships is is concerning. And what about the children? If he has contact with them, what's the going to be the impact? I think we were told by probation that the Brown-Stephanie relationship was no longer. Mm, I think we have recently. So she must um, be worried about her safety. Yes, and it depends, you know, what was going on in that relationship. But I would imagine it was the same sort of pattern. And there's another child there as well. So it's really concerning. And it's so important that people understand that the lessons, and that's why it's incredible that both of you have shared so much to ensure that 
my listeners who are all over the world hear what happened and what went on and that we can support you, but also people can sign the petition for the register. And Hetty, when does your campaign go live? When? Very soon. I'm working on it. Hopefully this side of Christmas. This side of Christmas. Well, I'll keep my listeners posted on that. And is there anything else that you would like to share before we wrap? I'd just like to say one thing, but I want to leave the rap to die, actually. But I would just like to say one thing. It's been awful. On every level, you can't describe it. And as victims, you get re-traumatised all the time. I'm sure you hear that from other victims. I know you've had, a, you've had on the programme. You know, you get re-traumatised through the criminal justice system. But, and it is a big but, actually, in the face of utter adversity off the back of the trial, where it just felt like we could do nothing, and this awful situation was something that we would have to live with and we'd have to cope with him coming out. Off the back of that, Di has been incredible in having the fire and the passion and the desire to make sure that things change as a result of what's happened. And so with my support, she did set up the Joanna Simpson Foundation, which is supporting children affected by domestic abuse and domestic homicide. Um, She has been she has met the Duchess of Cornwall, along with myself, who's now the Queen Consort, of course, and was the catalyst for Camilla speaking out about domestic abuse. And I continue selflessly to keep the conversation going in the public domain, no matter how desperately hard it is for her, because actually, because it's the right thing to do. And that way, Joe also has not died in vain. And she absolutely has not died in vain. You know, there was incredible things happening and ultimately lives being saved because of how Di has spoken out. So I just wanted to put that out there. Thank you for sharing Thank you, Hetty. You have been a power of strength to me, an absolute tower of strength. I couldn't have possibly done it without you. You've been incredible to me, Hetty. That's so wonderful to hear. So wonderful to hear. Well, thank you so much, Di and Hetty, for talking to me. It's been a really emotional conversation, but a really important conversation. And we've been very direct and very clear about what went on. And you're both incredible women. I mean, Di, what a testament to you, uh, your incredible daughter, but also your grand children who give you such comfort and who are both doing incredibly well in the world as as adults now. So I just want to thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Laura, for wanting to tell our story. We're so grateful to you. Oh, it's a pleasure, Di. I wish I could do more. I really do. Who knows? (laughs) I mean, it sounds like she was just desperately loved and is desperately missed. She made a... She was, as I say, she was loved by everyone except Brown. That's why it's just so upsetting to hear that she was, her character was not represented at the trial, you know, of who she really was and that... No, not at all. There was a false impression and that must have been very hard to to hear as her mum. And I, I can't imagine what you've gone through, Di, you know, when you give birth to your baby and when you nurture them and you love them and you care for them, you know, you don't expect to outlive them, do you? No. Well, anyway... She's left the legacy of her two beautiful children. She has, and you must be very proud, and I know she'd be very proud of you. You know, I don't know you, but I'm very proud of you, of just everything that you've done. It just fills my heart because you've been such an incredible woman and mother 
to your grandchildren and given them what they needed. And their success is a testament to you. It is. The Duchess of Cornwall, when I had an interview with her, she said, your grandchildren are very, very lucky to have you, Diana. And I said, no, I am very, very, very lucky to have them. Yes. Well, it's wonderful that, like I said, that you have each other. I think you are very lucky to have each other. You know, not always do the children have anyone to care and nurture and and love them and give them that unconditional love when something so catastrophic and traumatic has happened. Well, I also must thank husband as well, because I was 71 when Joe was killed. He was 76. We had to change the whole way of our life bringing them into our home because they they had Xboxes and all sorts of things that we really weren't in tune with at all. So our whole life changed, you know, from being pensioners. We became in need of babysitters if we wanted to go out and, you know, all taking children to school, six o'clock in the morning, the school was 20 miles away here. So it was a total change of life. And he was absolutely brilliant, really brilliant too. He was not their grandfather. He was their step-grandfather because sadly my first husband, he we divorced, but he we were still really good friends, but he had cancer and he died when he was only 65. So, oh, I'm sorry. Um, yes, he died just before Katie was born, actually, so it was very sad. But, um, yeah, we were still really good friends. We were all good friends. And my husband was amazing to put up with these two children. <laughs> Oh, well, I'm sure it hasn't been easy, but I've I've really, I mean, it's heartfelt for me to hear about Joe through you. And I'm really pleased that my listeners have been able to have the privilege of listening to you as well, because it is a privilege. So thank you so much for sharing so much of, of you, your daughter, Joe, and your beautiful family. Okay, I'm jumping in to wrap the episode. Now, I know from many of your messages that you've been really moved by Joe's case and, of course, by Diana and Hetty, but more so what Diana and the children have had to endure and what they're still enduring. You see, this is the legacy and reality of femicide. And it's so important, don't you think, that we have these honest and authentic conversations about it. It's the best way to learn and for us to understand and hopefully intervene and prevent in future cases. And you never know, you may just save a life. And we're not done with this conversation just yet. There's more to come, so stay tuned. Until next time, be curious, ask questions and always trust your instincts. Here's my final two cents before the episode wraps. If you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review wherever you listen to Crime Analyst or on the website www.crime-analyst.com. It really helps others find me and also helps with the ratings. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Jason Sheasley at Abridged Audio. Cover art and graphics by Chris Rowbottom at Syndicate and music by Kilrood.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.